Good morning. Uh, today's reading comes from the book of Matthew, which you will find on page 807 in the Church Bibles. We're reading from uh, chapter 2, verses 1, 1 to 12. The visit of the wise men. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him... Bring me words uh, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where, he, where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Thanks, Don. Uh, well, we're going to look at that passage together. As we do that, let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the time that we can spend in it now. In a passage that is perhaps familiar to many of us. Uh, we pray, Lord God, that you would uh, speak to us. We pray that you're, uh, by your spirit, you would open our eyes to see you today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I wonder if uh, you've sat down and watched any Christmas movies yet this year, um, trying to squeeze things like that in around uh, World Cup watching, uh, and uh, maybe uh, you've had a chance to see something. I think so far we've managed to watch uh, a Muppet Christmas Carol. We started watching that uh, last night. And, and of course, Charles Dickens' uh, classic has been uh, told and retold over many years. It, of course, tells the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, a miserable old man who says, bah humbug to Christmas before he's visited by three ghosts, uh, the ghost of Christmas past, uh, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come, uh, which leads to a complete transformation in his life. Uh, for Scrooge, uh, Christmas was nothing to get excited about. In fact, he was positively hostile to it, uh, and he was keen to make it as miserable as possible for everybody around him. Now, while you might not be anywhere near Ebenezer Scrooge levels, perhaps for one reason or another, Christmas is not something that you are particularly looking forward to this year. There could be any number of reasons why uh, you might find this time of year hard, uh, whether it's the stress of making Christmas special in the middle of a cost of living crisis or the pain that comes from uh, the reminder of strained family relationships or loved ones who are maybe no longer with us sharing this time of year. Christmas can be a troubling time for many. And there's a sense in which the message of Christmas at its heart is a message 
that brings trouble. Certainly that was the case for one person in particular in the passage that Don just read to us. If you look with me at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So Matthew tells us that when Herod heard the news of the wise men looking for the one born king of the Jews, he was troubled. And in order to understand why that was the case, it's helpful to understand who Herod was. Uh, The Herod that we read about here in Matthew chapter 2 has gone down in history as Herod the Great. He was known as a master builder. He restored the temple in Jerusalem and he built various palaces, cities, theaters, and fortresses. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to actually visit that part of the world. And we went to various locations and just about everywhere we went, we were told, well, Herod built this palace here or he built this fortress there. So you can still see the ruins of the places that he built. He was certainly someone who, who through his various building projects, has left his mark on history. But he wasn't just a renowned builder. He was also a ruthless dictator. Anyone who challenged his authority was likely to end up dead. In fact, he saw to it that one of his 10 wives was executed, as well as three of his own sons, not to mention the numerous members of his court and anyone perceived to to support one of his rivals. Anyone who Herod saw as a threat to his throne was met with a swift end. So you can just imagine how he received the news of a new king of the Jews. It's no wonder that all of Jerusalem was concerned when they heard that Herod was troubled. What would Herod do to this new pretender to the throne and to the wise men who came asking about him, who didn't seem particularly wise at this moment in time? Well, the answer was nothing immediately. Herod may have been ruthless, he may have been vicious, but he was also shrewd. On hearing about this new king, he consults his experts. We read verse 4, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." So Herod had an army of theologians at his disposal who were able to tell him exactly where God's promised king would be born. They quote from the prophet Micah, which reveals the location of this royal birth in Bethlehem, which was just a few miles from Jerusalem. But one of the really sad things about this account was that these theologians despite knowing their scriptures, despite having the knowledge of this royal birth, despite being able to pinpoint the location just a few miles away, the king's theologians had no desire to actually make the journey 
with the wise men. They, they, they had the information about Jesus, but they didn't want to know him. It's possible to become so familiar with the Bible that you are able to quote it chapter and verse. It's possible to come along to church every Sunday and be around the people of God. It's possible to say the right things and, and do the right things. It's possible to know about Jesus, but still not know Jesus. It's possible to remain indifferent to him. That was the case with these scribes and chief priests. But it certainly wasn't the case with Herod. Herod certainly couldn't be accused of indifference. No, he was downright hostile. Armed with the information from his scribes, he calls the, the wise men together. And, he, and we're told, verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So he sends the wise men away uh, with instructions to let him know when they, they find him. But we know that Herod had no intention of worshiping Jesus. And we know that because if we read on a little bit uh, beyond what was read to us, we learn in verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod was so desperate to cling to his throne that he engaged in an act of genocide, murdering every baby boy in that region who was two years old or under. Now, based on the size of the towns and villages in that region at that time, that would have probably been between 20 to 30 children. It was a horrific act, but one that for this king uh, was not out of the ordinary. He was willing to cling to his throne at any cost. It was a way of making sure that his bases were covered. You know, it's appalling when you think of it that the he went and did that because he had heard the prophecy and he was willing to do anything to try and stop that prophecy being fulfilled. Ultimately, though, all Herod's efforts to cling to power, they were futile. Immediately after the account of Herod killing these children, in the very next verse, in verse 19, uh, we read that Herod died. Just a short time, really, after the visit of the wise men, this despotic king, so desperate to cling to his throne, who ruled for 37 years, whose impact is still being felt today, he breathed his last. He didn't leave his throne. He was taken from it. And it's a reminder to us that even the most powerful rulers they don't last forever. One day, all of us will have our thrones taken away from us. And here's where we see the trouble of Christmas. Uh, we've seen over the past few weeks as we've been studying Matthew's account of the Christmas story that the message of Christmas is the message of a promised king. 
Here in this passage, we see that that's exactly who these wise men were looking for. And it was the reason that Herod was so troubled. But the arrival of this king, he isn't just troubling for ancient Near Eastern despots. No, he's troubling for everyone. And that's because according to the Bible, all of us are in a sense little Herods. The Bible says that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the heart. That every one of us lives as though we are, we are the ruler of our lives. Uh, the sinful condition of every human heart is seen in the way that we live with ourselves at, at the center of the world, uh, re resisting any authority outside of us. And the message of Christmas is that the true king has come. And he's come to rule. He's come to rule each one of us. And in order for us to accept his rule, we need to be willing to vacate the throne of our lives and bow down to him. And that prospect, it causes enormous trouble for us because it means that we no longer get to call the shots. It's a deeply troubling prospect in a world that tells us that really the highest good is our right to self-determination. And to give up that right, it seems like it goes against what is at the very core of what makes us human. And so it does sound troubling. Until we realize that living under the rule of King Jesus it actually makes us more human. It's when we live under the rule of King Jesus that we live as we were made to live by the God who created us to know him. And that's because Jesus is not some flawed human king. He's not some megalomaniac dictator. No, as we saw last week in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, he is Emmanuel. God with us. He is the almighty God of the universe who took on human flesh and chose to come in humility. And so when we submit to the rule of King Jesus, we're submitting to the rule of the God who made us and knows us and knows what's best for us. It's when we stop clinging to our throne and bow to the true King that we actually experience life as we were made to experience it. It's only when we confront the trouble of Christmas that we can experience the joy of Christmas. And that brings us to the second thing that I'd like us to see in this passage, the joy that Christmas brings. And it's a joy that we see in these wise men. Now, all sorts of folk tales have built up around these guys. And because of that, we assume that there were three. Uh, there's actually no reference to that in the text. Uh, they've been given names. Again, we, we don't find that anywhere in Matthew's account. There's plenty that we don't know about them. And I've probably just ruined every nativity play for the next 10 years. But what we do know, well, verse 1 tells us that they came from the east in other words, these guys, they, they traveled from outside Israel. They, they weren't Jews. They, they were outsiders. And they're described as wise. 
They were scholars. They were men who engaged in deep study. And their study, it had led them to focus on a particular star, a star that they had identified as belonging to the king of the Jews, a king who was worthy of their worship. Now, we might ask, how did these non-Jews from a far-off land come to the conclusion that this particular star would lead them to a king that they should worship? Well, Matthew doesn't give us that information. But perhaps in all of their scholarly research, they had some access to the Jewish scriptures. Maybe they'd read in Numbers 24, verse 17, of the promised star that would signal the arrival of a king. It was actually a prophecy that was given by by a pagan, Balaam, who they may have come across in their own traditions. Or maybe they were from the part of the world that had had once been the, the place of exile for Daniel. In Babylon, Daniel had spoken of a king who would one day establish God's kingdom. We can only really speculate as to what they knew, what they understood, but at some level, they were clearly drawn by God to make this long, arduous journey to Bethlehem to find this king. It's a massive contrast, isn't it, from from Herod and his scribes who weren't willing to travel the few miles down to Bethlehem. These men, they were willing to go to great lengths to find this king. They had a desire to meet him, but not just to meet him, their intention was to worship him. Before ever meeting him, they'd already come to the conclusion that he was worthy of worship. Isn't that interesting? Their hearts had been stirred. Their hearts had been drawn to him. At some level, God was at work bringing these men to meet Jesus, outsiders, non-Jews, drawn to worship him. Matthew is telling us here that this promised king, he wasn't just the king of the Jews. He wasn't limited to one people group or nation. Here we see the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to be a blessing to all nations. The claim at the heart of the Christmas story is that the God of the Bible, he is not just a God, he is the God. He isn't one God among many, a God just for Israel. No, he's the God of all tribes and tongues and nations. The creator God who made the stars, he entered our world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. These men who would have worshipped pagan gods all their lives, they were drawn from a far-off nation to come and worship Jesus. But they didn't just make a physical journey. Spiritually, they left their false gods behind to come and worship the true God. Now, Christians are often accused of arrogance for, for making such an exclusive claim about Jesus. And in a world that says that no one can insist that their view of God is better than all the rest, that all religions are equally valid, to claim that there's such a thing as one true God, well, that's seen not only as arrogant, but as intolerant, dangerous even. But we've already seen the claim of the angel in Matthew chapter 1, and it's the claim that Jesus made throughout his life, that he was God with us. To meet Jesus is to meet God. 
And it's when we meet Jesus that we experience the joy of Christmas. And that's exactly what these wise men experienced. They'd spent their lives worshipping pagan gods. But when they arrived in Bethlehem and they encountered Jesus for the first time, they experienced a joy like nothing they'd ever experienced before. We read verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew's at pains to stress just how joyful these guys were when they finally met Jesus. And the most natural response to an encounter with the one who made us to know him is to do what these wise men did. They fell down and worshipped him. They gave up their thrones. They gave up their right to themselves and they handed everything they were over to the one that they were made for. The one who made sense of their existence. The one who came to rule not by clinging to a crown, but by giving himself in humility on a cross. That's what Jesus did. This baby who was born in a manger grew up to die on a cross, bearing the penalty for anyone who puts their trust in him. For all the times that we've rejected his rule and sought to rule ourselves. On the cross, he took the blame for our selfishness, our self-centeredness, for our sin, so that we could know forgiveness and freedom and an everlasting joy that eclipses any troubles that we might face in this life. It's a joy that belongs to anyone who comes to him, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. It's a joy that's far greater than any gods we might worship in this world, be they comfort or pleasure or success. It's a joy that lasts forever, a joy that transcends our circumstances. It's a joy that is available to all nations. Isn't it wonderful that we see that promise fulfilled as we gather here together 2,000 years later on another Christmas, a, a community gathered from all over the world, even here in this room this morning. And it's a joy that you can know today if you will come and bow the knee to the king that you were made for. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, the king. Uh, we thank you for Christmas. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity it gives us to to lift our eyes to you, to be reminded of just the wonder of the Christmas message that, that you have come, God, in the person of your son, Jesus, into this world so that we might know you, so that we might have a relationship with you. Lord, we thank you that you have not remained distant, that you have not left us in the dark, but the light of Christ has shone in this world so that we could know forgiveness and eternal life. And we pray, Lord God, as we come to the table now to take bread and wine and be reminded of the forgiveness and life that we have in Christ, that you would strengthen our hearts, that you would refresh us this Christmas, that we might know the, the joy of Christmas afresh, a joy that does not depend on our circumstances, a joy that transcends our circumstances. 
And Lord, would you fill us afresh today by your Spirit of that joy. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.